Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. No chimes at the afternoon lecture. It's my great privilege to introduce my predecessor, Terry Bellinger, and there's a, a great deal one might say. Um, obviously, Terry is the giant about whom I spoke yesterday, the founding director of Rare Book School and the recipient um, for his pains and for his genius of the Big Mac, the MacArthur Fellowship. Um, Terry, when I first asked him about getting the Big Mac, said in a typically self-deprecating fashion, yes, they like founders of schools. They gave one also to the founder of a clown school. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but it was a great line. Um, I'd like to uh, read to you just a couple of excerpts of what some of Terry's friends have said about Terry and his achievement. Um, this is Martin Antonetti, who's the head of rare books at Smith College. He said, Terry understood perhaps more than any other library educator how closely linked are the concerns of special collections, scholarship, the antiquarian book trade, publishing, and private collecting. Our very own Richard Noble, cataloger at the John Hay, said, I am gratified and really unspeakably thankful to TB for having dreamt up Rare Book School and shaped it and made it lively. I am only one of scores and scores of people who can say something like this about TB's influence on their lives. And Gregory Pass, who's the head of rare books at uh, the University of St. Louis, said, what I received from RBS was far more than the content of the individual courses I took. Among the most valuable things I received were the advice and support of the instructors and of my fellow students. And most valuable of all, the mentoring of its director. Rare Book School has been one of the most formative experiences of my life. And finally, Barbara Heritage, on the occasion on which all these remarks were made in this room, characterized Terry Bellinger as a man who, back then, I thought of as a cross between Achilles and Samuel Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, Terry Bellinger. book collector, Stuart Schimmel, once said that the principal difference 
Are you all able to hear me? Okay, they can't hear me. How clever are you? Yes? Yes. The American Book Collector? The American Book Collector, Stuart Schimmel, once said that the principal difference between good book collectors and great book collectors is one of staying power. Most collectors, Schimmel said, buy books in their field of interest for 10 or 15 years or so, but then they begin to balk at the prices they are now asked to pay. They remember the good old days when they could buy an item for $300 some years ago or turn it down as overpriced. And that item now goes for $3,000. Regardless of the size of their bank accounts, they can't bring themselves emotionally to accept such price rises. They won't pay $3,000 now for something that they can't help but truly believe in their heart of hearts is barely worth 300. But since they're good book collectors, what they do is to find a new collecting interest. Now when they look at prices, it's a new ball game. When they see a book priced at $300 in their new collecting field, they have no personal history with that price and they tend to accept it without emotional storm and drong as the going rate for the book, and they have no built-in resistance to buying it. Their new collecting interest lasts for 10 or 15 years or so, <laughs> but then they begin to balk at the prices they are now asked to pay. They remember the good old days when they could buy an item for $300 some years ago or turn it down as overpriced, and that item now goes for $3,000. Regardless of the size of their bank accounts, they can't bring themselves emotionally to accept such price rises. They won't pay $3,000 now for something they can't help but truly believe in their heart of hearts is barely worth $300. But, since they're book collectors, what they do is to find a new collecting interest. Well, you get the idea. Stuart Schimmel went on to point out that the really great collectors don't get caught up in the cycle. Instead, they stay faithful to their original collecting interests over a lifetime. To be sure, they whine and moan about what has happened to the prices of books in their field, but they continue to pony up year after year, decade after decade. Finally, their collections represent the work not of 10 or 15 years, but of 40 or 50 years. Schimmel's example of great collectors is William Scheide of Princeton, who never stopped collecting early printed books and still hasn't. Other examples of great collectors that immediately come to mind include Mary Crapo Hyde, later Lady Eccles, who bequeathed her great collection of Samuel Johnson and his circle to Harvard, Wilmarth S. Lewis, who collected Horace Walpole books and letters to Yale's great benefit, George Arthur Plimpton, who collected school books in general and handwriting books, especially early ones in particular, to Columbia, 
Bernard F. Burgunder, 70-year collecting passion for George Bernard Shaw, resulting in a collection of more than 10,000 items bequeathed to Cornell, and so on down the Ivy League and elsewhere. Closer to home, one thinks of UVA's own C. Waller Barrett, who collected American literature for half a century to the great benefit of his university, this university, the university. <laughs> I see an analogy between Stuart Schimmel's story about the staying power of great collectors and the staying power of great scholars. While there are many exceptions, great scholars also tend to stick to a single subject throughout their lifetimes. To name examples close at hand, Sue Allen on 19th and early 20th century American cloth bindings, Christopher Clarkson on medieval binding structures, Paul Needham on early printed books, James Mosley on European letter form, Michael Toyman on lithography, great scholars all, I'm sure you will agree. Measured by this standard, I am myself a dilettante. After a turn at playwriting and directing in the late 1960s and early 1970s, I began working on the 18th century London book trade, then shifted my interest in the 1980s to the study of the identification of illustration processes, and later the history of American rare book and special collections librarianship. And recently, I've morphed again. One of my current collecting and scholarly interests centers on the silver coins of first century imperial Rome in general, and the coins issued by the emperors Titus and Domitian in particular, and even more particularly on silver denarii with stamp images of dolphins and anchors on their reverse sides. You will recall the New Yorker magazine's habit of quoting short passages and then commenting on them using these little pieces as fillers to prevent blank white spaces in the final column of longer articles. The New Yorker calls these news breaks, small oddments and surprises, as someone once put it, that have been scattered through the pages of the magazine like daisies in a field. One of my favorite New Yorker newsbreaks quotes from a piece by a dance critic as follows. I suppose if you ask the man in the street what Debussy's best-known ballet score is, he'd be forced to admit upon reflection that it's prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. The New Yorker's comment? What street? <laughs> when I mention anchors and dolphins tonight, I'm confident that the men and women in this street here will immediately think of the famous device used by Aldous Lucius on his title pages in Colophons, beginning in 1501. For those who wandered in by mistake, look at figure one on page one of the handout. Writing on the dolphin and anchor emblem in, in successive editions of his adages, Erasmus discusses and connects 
the motto with the phrase don't uh, connects the emblem with the motto make haste slowly. A favorite saying, he says, of the Emperor Caesar Augustus. This is the meaning of the emblem, says Erasmus in the 1515 edition of the Adages. Make haste slowly, for the leader who carries things safely out of reach of disaster is better than one who is blustering and overconfident. Things that are foreseen and provided for by slow and gentle forethought are safer than what is hurried into action by hot and hasty heads. Erasmus continues. From the ancient coins minted by the Emperor Vespasian, we can easily gather that this same proverb pleased that emperor too. Aldous Minucius showed me a specimen, a silver piece of old and clearly Roman workmanship, which he said was sent to him as a gift by the Venetian nobleman Pietro Bembo, who honored the youthful Aldous as an example of the foremost student and diligent investigator of literary antiquities in his time. The impression stamped on the coin was like this. On the obverse, this is still Erasmus, on the obverse was the portrait of Vespasian with his titles. On the reverse was a dolphin curving around and embracing the shank of an anchor. The anchor, which stays and moors the ship and keeps it in place, indicates slowness. The dolphin, the fastest of all animals, and the animal of keenest reflexes expresses speed. Erasmus continues with an encomium to Aldous himself. Aldous has taken as his own this same device which once so pleased Vespasian. He has multiplied it and made it not only famous, but also most beloved by everyone everywhere in the world who understands and loves literature. I do not believe that the symbol was so illustrious when it was stamped on the imperial money and carried around to be rubbed by the fingers of merchants. Then now, when it has been printed on the title pages of books of all sorts, in both languages, Latin and Greek, among all nations, even those beyond the borders of Christendom, it is known, loved, and praised by all who cultivate the sacred studies of the liberal arts, and especially by those who despise turgid and barbaric dogma and aspire to the true ancient learning. The Aldean Dolphin and Anchor is probably the best known device in the history of Western printing and publishing history. During Aldous's lifetime, it was co-opted for use on imprints by pirates seeking to capitalize on his reputation as a scholar printer. It was used by his descendants. It was used by William Pickery in 19th century London. And if you look on your handout, example 15, you can see an example of a Pickering imprint. It was used by Pickering in the 19th century and by Dent's Great Everyman series in the, 17th, in the 20th century. And see example 16. It was used extensively by Doubleday. Remember Doubleday anchor paperbacks, the grown-ups in the room? 
until the 1990s when Doubleday disappeared into the maw of Bertelsmann. The dolphin and anchor emblem appears in stained glass and carved wood and plaster and stone on the walls and ceilings of countless academic libraries. And I've given you an example of that, example 14 from the City of Edinburgh Public Library. It appears elsewhere, as you can see, for example, from example 17, as a well-known inn sign in England. There it is on top of the Dolphin and Anchor Hotel in Chichester. The dolphin, the fastest of all animals, says Erasmus, retains its reputation for being a friendly beast. Everybody seems to like dolphins. The possible exception of tuna fishermen. About 10 years ago, looking for a Christmas present, I used the internet to search out the Roman coin on which the dolphin and anchor emblem was based. And I discovered that decent copies of the coin could be purchased for between $100 and $400, depending on condition. I also discovered the interesting fact that Erasmus was wrong. The coin was not, in fact, first issued by the Emperor Vespasian, but instead by his elder son and successor, Titus. They shared the same name, Titus Vespasian. And by his second son, Titus's successor, Domitian. The father and the two sons constitute the Flavian dynasty, and I've given you a cheat sheet in figure two of the Roman emperors of the first century. Hardly necessary for the audience, I'm sure. Roman imperial coins of the first century AD are easily identified. Their obverse almost always shows the head and shoulders of the reigning emperor in profile, and you can see a batch of them at the bottom of the first page of your handout, with his name and abbreviated version of some of his titles. For example, AVG, Augustus, and PM, Pontifex Maximus, that is, leader of the church, a title later co-opted by the pope, hence Supreme Pontiff. The reverse of first century Roman imperial coins usually carry an inscription detailing further titles and honorers of the emperor, including the exact number of times he held the positions of tribune and consul at the time the coin was minted, plus the number of imperial acclamations he was thus far granted. Since these numbers changed at least annually, it is almost always possible to date an early Roman imperial coin to within a six months period, and often more narrowly. Thus, if you look at the figures of three and four, two denarii with identical inscriptions on the obverse, IMP, TITVS, CAES, Vespasian, AVGPM, and on the reverse, TRP, 9, IMP, 15, COS, 8P, must both refer to the Emperor Titus, and they must both have been minted between January and June 80 AD, for it was only during this period that Titus had accumulated nine tribunician years, 
Tribunitia Potestas, Tribune of the People, TRP. Fifteen imperial acclamations, IMP, and eight consulships, C-O-N. Distinguishing the coins issued by the Emperor Vespasian from those issued by his son, the Emperor Titus, is thus very easy. Vespasian, an outsider, had accumulated relatively few political offices and honors before he was proclaimed emperor in AD 69, after a thorough discussion with three other claimants. A year later as emperor, he was only in his second consulship. His son Titus was emperor for only a little more than two years, but as heir apparent, he had previously held many honors from his father. For example, had had eight tribunician years and seven consulships at the time of his own accession. Figures five and six show images of two denarii issued early in the reign of Titus's younger brother Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 AD after the death of Titus, whom quite possibly he poisoned. This was first century Rome, after all. Titus and Domitian's father, Vespasian, died in bed, a notable achievement for a first century Roman emperor. On these coins, we again see the emperor's image on the obverse. The inscription on the reverse of figure five, I-M-P-C-A-E-S, Caesar, Domitianus, Augustus, uh, and on the reverse, TRP-COS-70-ES, designated HPP. At the time of the coin's issue in 81 AD, Domitian had served once as tribune of the people. He had already been consul seven times and was designated consul for the eighth time, but had not yet received this honorific. In figure six, issued a year later in 82 AD, the reverse now shows that Domitian had been counsel for eight times. A great many silver denarii and other coins were issued by the Roman mint during the reigns of the Flavian emperors, nearly 500 under Titus, who ruled for a little more than two years, more than 800 for Domitian, who reigned for about 15 years before being assassinated by his own staff members. Rare book school staff members take note. <laughs> no direct evidence survives, but it seems at least fairly possible that Titus had a particular reason for authorizing the issue of the dolphin and anchor denarius in 80 AD and Domitian for continuing the minting of the coin until 82. And that was the volcanic outburst of Mount Vesuvius. Shortly after Titus ascended the imperial throne in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted about 130 miles south of Rome on the Bay of Naples, destroying, as we all know, the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. The volcano's eruption was a stunning event. There hadn't been a significant volcanic outburst in the ancient world for more than 1,500 years and no one had any idea of what was happening when Vesuvius blew. There is no Greek or Roman god associated with volcanoes. 
The closest one is Poseidon, Greek or Neptune, Roman, god of the sea, and known as the earth shaker, that is, the god of earthquakes. Vesuvius erupted in the fall of 79 AD. Clearly, the gods were upset and angry. Shortly thereafter, Titus instituted a program at the Roman Mint, continued for two years into his brother's reign, whereby the reverse of some of the denarii began to carry images representing various of the major gods as an attempt at propitiation. Ceres, on page two, figure seven, wheat on a table, Minerva, represented by a Corinthian helmet on a pulvinar or altar, figure eight. Apollo, you have to look closely at this one. Uh, dolphins, ravens, snakes. Figure nine. Jupiter, thunderbolts, those rather strange unicorn horn-like things are thunderbolts, trust me. Figure ten. And Neptune, here represented by his usual symbols, the dolphin and anchor. Dolphin and anchor denarii were issued from the first half of AD 80 through the beginning of AD 82 when Domitian's coinage shifted to, to an emphasis on images of Minerva, for whom he had a special attachment. The dolphin and anchor device was new on coins. The two almost never appeared together on Greek or Roman coins before Titus's issue in 80 AD, although they were linked together on occasion, as you can see from figure 13, from a mosaic floor dating uh, uh, well over 200 years before the dolphin and anchor denarii. Still, not a common image. Mind you, there are no hard facts connecting the dolphin and anchor device that appears on the reverse of silver denarii issued by Titus and Domitian and the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Indeed, the evidence for the connection is slight. In beginning my study of dolphin and anchor denarii, I was astonished at how little we really know about the reigns of early Roman emperors. We have Suetonius and Tacitus, we have the evidence of inscriptions on surviving stone monuments and inscriptions on coins, too, for that matter. But we have virtually no state papers or pronouncements or annals or domestic correspondence to work with. Much more than I had realized was guesswork. Shades of Gutenberg. Even the exact dates of major events in the history of ancient Rome are uncertain. For example, many of the standard modern accounts of the destruction of Pompeii give 24 August 79 as the date of Vesuvius's eruption. But the manuscript tradition is unclear, and recent scholarship indicates that a much more likely date is two months later, in October 79. The citizens of Pompeii were wearing fall, not summer clothing, when the lava and 
ash descended on them, and the produce for sale in the market consisted of fall, not summer, fruits and vegetables. The Wikipedia Mount Vesuvius article states that the October date is almost certainly correct. The Wikipedia Pompeii entry gives the August date without comment. Go figure. Our principal source of information about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, or our principal contemporary source, I should say, uh, are two letters written by Pliny the Younger to Tacitus 25 years after the event. The manuscript used by Aldus in preparing his 1508 edition of the letters of Pliny the Younger, and the first time they appeared in print in anything like an authentic form. The manuscript used by Aldus was the 9th century Codex Laurentianus Medicius. Laurentianus Medicius, that is formerly owned by Lorenzo de' Medici. This manuscript gives the August 79 date, but other early manuscripts give other dates. And Roman dates, especially when abbreviated, can be difficult to interpret. As anyone who has ever tried to figure out why the Ides of March is the Ides of March will agree. One of the most significant dates in ancient history, and we're still arguing about when the date was, But meanwhile, remember me about 10 years ago, looking for Christmas presents, stumbling on dolphin and anchor denarii for sale, and discovering that I could buy examples of these coins for what seemed then to me to be a reasonable price. The result is that John Bucto now owns an original Roman anchor and dolphin denarius, as does Barbara Heritage, as does Tess Goodman, as does Ryan Roth, as does Hans Tausig as do I. Remember, I was a new collector of these coins. The price seemed reasonable to me. <laughs> in buying the coins on the internet, I found myself in a world strangely similar to that of the internet used in rare book market. There's an equivalent to bookfinder.com and Via Libri for coins, called V-Coins, the online coin show. It features coins for sale by more than 200 dealers worldwide. When I checked the V-Coins website this morning, there was one Titus Dolphin and Anchor Denarius for sale at 550 guineas. Oh, excuse me, 550 euros. Too high, too high. Outrageous. <laughs> Why, I remember when you could get a good Dolphin and Anchor Denarius for... Excuse me. And one Titus Dolphin and Anchor Denarius for sale at uh, $105, but not a very good one. There are usually at least a couple of Dolphin and Anchor Denarii for sale at any given time on V-Coins. Over a several years period, I bought a fair number of them. Eventually, I had a horde of Dolphin and Anchor Denarii, and it eventually occurred to me that here was an interesting rare book school pedagogical tool in the making. I stepped up my buying activity until I had 14 dolphin and anchor coins. I then put I then put one coin into each of 14 clear plastic boxes. 
inserted each plastic box into a bigger plastic box, added a mounting card explaining added a mounted card containing an explanation and an enlarged image of the coin. Roman denarii are almost exactly the size and weight of an American dime. I finished off each box with magnifying glass, coin tongs, coin tongs is pretentious for tweezers with rubber tips, <laughs> and for comparison, a 1920s Mercury dime. And I've given you one for your in your handout. And page six, example number twenty-two. The American coin has the head and shoulders of Mercury on the obverse, and Roman fasces on the reverse. Not much has changed in the world of silver coins in 2,000 years. Late last year, I presented the 14 plastic boxes to Rare Book School in honor of, in honor of Hans Tausig for potential use in the introductory Rare Book School History of the Book course. Hans Tausig is a frequent Rare Book School course attendee, as many of you know. See his picture of figure 20. He was the first chairman of the Rare Book School Board of Directors, and he has been a good friend in many ways, both to the school and to me. There are several Tausig coin sets on the table at the back of the room for you to examine on your way out of the auditorium after this lecture. As an homage to Hans, in following up on a suggestion made by Melissa Mead, I made a slightly simplified drawing of the dolphin and anchor image, sent it to a manufacturer of chocolate coins and had 1.5-inch chocolate dolphin and anchor coins made up, wrapped in silver foil. See for yourself. <laughs> there are two apiece. this party trick at home. They cost about 25 cents each if you buy enough. <laughs> I had coins for about half a dozen more lectures on this subject. <laughs> if interested, please get in touch with my agent, Saul Hirock. 
Meanwhile, I would be serving chocolate coin desserts at home for quite a while. <laughs> now, two apiece, so that you can keep one if you're a collector and eat the other one. <laughs> now, they contain Belgian chocolate. But may I have one? <laughs> the easiest way to open is to bend them slightly in this direction and then in the other direction, and the cap comes right off. <laughs> there are extra empty cases at the back of the room in case you'd like further examples to impress your loved ones back home. Back to business. Clearly, Erasmus didn't know how to read the inscription on imperial Roman coins. He saw Titus Vespasian and assumed it was the father rather than the son. Erasmus' error was forgivable. Somewhat less excusable is the invariable misattribution of the coin by modern historians of the book. Scholars of high reputation, including George Fletcher, Anthony Hobson, and Malcolm Lowry, all get it wrong. They all attribute the coin to the Emperor Vespasian, which is impossible. The coin's inscription positively identifies the emperor in question as Titus or Domitian. Neither Fletcher, nor Hobson, nor Lowry could have looked at any of the extensive illustrated literature on ancient coinage, where the dolphin and anchor denarius is identified in any number of standard sources. I find this lapse the more interesting in that book historians are generally interested in this coin. Their writings suggest, indeed, that the dolphin and anchor denarius is one of the most important coins ever minted in the ancient or any other world. Right up there with the, with the widow's might and the 30 pieces of silver. Even more interesting is my discover that students of Roman coinage have no particular interest in the dolphin and anchor denarius. They never hold it up as worthy of special notice, indeed. They never mention the Aldine connection at all, ever. To numismatists, it's just another first century Roman denarius issued by a not particularly notable emperor and then by his bad guy brother Domitian. Numismatists are interested in several Flavian dynasty silver and copper coins. One of them, see figure 11. See figure 11 on page 2. Shows a disconsolate Jewish captive kneeling in front of a trophy of arms commemorating the conquest by Titus of Judea and the sack of Jerusalem. Another shows, see figure 12, an image of the newly built Colosseum. You will pay $50,000 for a good copy of this coin. Colosseum is financed by that sack of Jerusalem as panels on the arch of Titus in Rome make clear, see figure 18 on page 4, where you have the arch 
and a detail from one of the panels. Thus, the title of my lecture this evening, Parallel Lines Never Meet, Dolphins and Anchors and Aldous, Book Historians and Numismatists and Roman Coins. In the process of collecting Titus and Domitian Dolphin and Anchor Denarii, I gradually developed an access database containing images of the coins I found online and filled in fairly detailed information about them together with an inventory of what coins I own myself. See page five of your handout, turn sideways. I quickly realized that there were many different versions of the dolphin and anchor device on these coins. Compare the images in examples 3, 4, 5, and 6 on page 1 of your handout, for instance. The ancient Roman Minter created these images, and if you turn back to page 6, figure 24, The ancient Roman minter created these images by taking a silver blank called a flan, placing it on a wood platform holding an embedded bronze die engraved with the design intended for one side of the coin, closing the upper die on the flan and then hitting the resulting sandwich with a hammer to force the metal of the flan into the engraved images on the upper and lower bronze dies. After a, f a few false starts, I discovered, and I'll go back to uh, page 5 and the bottom of page 4 in particular. After a few false starts, I discovered that the best way to distinguish between the different dolphin and anchor images on the reverse of the coins was to begin by separating the Titus coins from the Domitians. Then, for each emperor, I divided the images into two groups, one showing anchors with flukes resembling the letter C, the other showing anchor flukes looking more like a bow, as in bow and arrow. And back to page one, you can see the difference between the two. There's relatively little overlap. It either looks like a C with uh, vertical flukes at the end, or it looks like a bow and arrow, a gentle curve, part of a circle. For each of these groups, finally, I charted the relationship between the dolphin's tail and the surrounding inscription, assigning each image a number according to that relationship and making up the little charts you see at the bottom of page five to tell me what the number was. And if you consult the coin and the legend, you will see that you are looking at a 173 in the image at the bottom of page 5 according to the location of the tail. In doing this, I was, of course, looking for identical images on different coins. That is, two different coins struck from the same die. 
The database contains information about 100, contains information about approximately 170 different surviving dolphin and anchor coins for which I have images. Thus far, I've identified one set of quintuplicates, that is, five different coins, all struck from the same dolphin and anchor bronze die, two quadruplicates, four different coins struck from the same die, ten triplicates, three different coins struck from the same die, and about twenty duplicates, two different coins struck from the same die. According to the complicated formula given in Ian Caradice's 1983 book, Coinage and Finances in the Reign of Domitian, and see figure 24, beg your pardon, 23. According to Caradice, by manipulating the figures in this very complicated formula, I should eventually be able to figure out how many dolphin and anchor coins were struck based on the number of duplicate dies and come to some conclusion about the percentage of Titus and Domitian's total coin output represented by dolphin and anchor denarii. Caradice did this on selected coins of Domitian. He did not use the anchor and dolphin image as one of them because no numismatist is interested in anchor and dolphin denarii. Do I know what I'm doing? <laughs> Dabbling in the statistics of Roman coinage in general and dolphin and anchor denarii in particular? Not a bit. But stay tuned. Maybe I'll figure out something to make numismatists realize that the dolphin and anchor denarius is worthy of further study in its own right, as well as, as for its position as progenitor of the most famous colophon in the history of the Western book. Thank you very much. As I'm
because if you think Elvis is an anchor, so do I. But I read in some cases, and again, I have quadruplicates and triplicates and duplicates, and by comparing the two, I will be able to say with some exactitude that this formula is correct, how many were actually struck based on the law of probability. I have a clue why this works, but my boss doesn't, he does. He's an athlete, so he must not. I'm wondering if you can explain your um, uh, dolphin tail uh, <laughs> metric here. Say <laughs> again? The dolphin tail. Uh, have you just measured the angle at which the tail sits? No, I did it. I eyeballed it. Did you look at the numbers? Did you see how it works? So if it wasn't either a 170 or a 180, it was maybe a 175 or a 177, and then a 176, and then a 176.5. And then the numbers, the whole thing, because I realized I hadn't done enough space. <laughs> and then I stopped doing that because all my old notes became useless and went into the decimal system. It's just like you. <laughs> well, who knew that the comic physics was going to be <laughs> Closed box, and then take it. 
forcing the metal onto the Forcing the silver into the mill edge. Now, there's a good reason for that. It prevents you from clipping the coin. And one of the problems with ancient coinage, where it's basically an image in a regular law, is that you could clip the coin under the uh, argument that you were reducing it to the standard size. Uh, and this was a major problem with many coins in the ancient world. Uh, if you see a coin that is beautifully centered on its plan, be careful. Because the best ones are usually forgeries, modern forgeries made for discriminating collectors that want pretty coins. The great thing about the anchor in Dolphin, Denarius, is that it is inconceivable that anybody would bother to forge it. <laughs> so inconsequential. But when it has the Colosseum on it, and a good copy is $50,000, it's a completely different ballpark. Uh, but the coins, by and large, are not particularly handsome, as you can see, although we have promised in the image. And that's through all ancient coins. And a lot of the drawings that some of them are going to be beautifully centered. But the average one, and some can be quite far off. The average one is not so. And there seems to be a little way to control that. Were all, were all, all these coins minted in Rome, or did they use the device in the provincial mints too? Well, that's of course, the Vince collects coins, so that's a, a knowledgeable and good question. At this period, the provincial uh, mints were not minting silver coins. They were minting bronze coins because there was an immense, or copper coins, really. There was an immense need for them, and it was too much trouble to get them on their own. Uh, so that there are a great many bronze or copper coins issued during the rates of Titus and Domitian, not from the Roman mint. <coughs> there was a mint in what we now call France. There was a long standing mint in the Holy Land uh, to provide the Eastern market. East, the Roman Empire was extended at that point. Uh, those are common coins. Silver, especially gold, seemed to have been only in Rome for a very long time. Really, you can control quality. Because, of course, this, you know, it says sterling silver, but it isn't. It's hard to tell. And some of these parts are, in fact, copper separates from silver uh, on the outside which means the forgeries in our period. As the uh, Roman emperor, this Roman emperor went to have a basket in the uh, third and fourth centuries, anything goes in the Roman mint, and the emperors were debasing their own coinage. But there was a Spartan fury about coins issued, probably from ignorance, the way it usually works. They made good paper in the and it because they didn't know how to make bad paper. And then they learned how to make hand paper, or bad paper, there was no song. <laughs> so, the mosaic and the coins, the pearl, the dolphin starts at the ground, and the pearl is the ground. All this together is all over the I have identified only a single instance 
of the tail going in the same direction as the orbiting point. It's not, I don't have one. It's not, it's an emission point. But it's the of paradise in the tail of the carnage identifies. Uh, this probably doesn't mean a whole lot. I would like to think that that one is one that Bethel gave all this. But if you think about the way images work, it's ever so likely that we just got reversed in the process of drawing it based on the coin and then making a woodlock so that it sits with one half a dozen of the other. There's just no way to tell. But it is, in fact, absolutely the case that virtually all of the coins go the other way from the Albany. After all of they all go the other way. After all of they all go the other way. I think so. I haven't really uh, investigated that, but it's actually right. Uh, what I find fascinating, I hope you do too, uh, is where are the philologists in all of this? There are any number of modern editions of Pliny the Younger, and they all have sent others as the day of Vesuvius, and it cannot be right. It cannot be right. They are simply following tradition. And though they're consulting other manuscripts, in part, I think, because all this did the first edition. And consequence of, of the letters of Pliny the Younger, everybody is following the text. And of course, it doesn't say 24 August 79. It's the ninth day after the Monads, before the eighth day of the something else's. And when you abbreviate that, and it's a scribe who does not understand the system, you end up with dates that really make no sense in many of the manuscripts. Here, the archaeological evidence seems to me is simply compelling. I do not see how you could have wine in the market for sale in August, because wine is not made in August in a hot, uh, even on a hot planet on Monday. It has to be done in October. And the bitter is. So, there are extra blank. There are some coin sets to look at in the back, and there is wine in July <laughs> in room 109. Please join me in thanking Terry before we proceed. To our